Each major U.S. military conflict has come with its own set of health hazards, and the profiles of deployed troops have changed over time as well. Meanwhile, debates about the health consequences of military conflicts increasingly acknowledge that chronic health problems can arise years after service. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Now I'm talking with Linda McCauley, Dean of the Emory University Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing. As part of the journal series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. McCauley has co-authored a perspective article about veterans' health and health care. Dr. McCauley, you begin your perspective article by discussing the long-term effects of exposure to Agent Orange and its major contaminant, dioxin. Was there any suggestion during the Vietnam War itself that widespread spraying of Agent Orange might be harmful to troops? How did that evidence emerge and ultimately lead to action? So I think during the actual theater of operations, the troops on the ground saw the spraying of the foliage in the theater of operations as a positive thing that would save lives because of the ability of the opposing forces to hide in the thick jungles and attack the troops. And so it so often happens, sometimes when we're in a crisis situation, like a military conflict, we do things that will save lives immediately. And so it was seen as really a life-saving positive thing at that time. And the thing about dioxin exposures is you don't see the effects of that immediately. It's not like other type of pesticide exposures, herbicide exposures that might cause immediate acute effects. And in the reports that were generated as a result of Agent Orange, there were very few acute effects. So if you didn't have anything occurring on the ground, the alarm wasn't high. And then remember, dioxin was a contaminant in the herbicide. It wasn't that they thought for any reason that they were directly spraying dioxide. So no, I think it was done as a positive thing. And undoubtedly, it saved thousands of lives at the time. But that doesn't minimize what we know about dioxin, which is the most potent poison known to mankind, its ability to profoundly affect the health of humans that are exposed to it. How have those exposures, short and long-term health hazards for U.S. troops changed over time and from one conflict to the next? I have to tell you what was amazing around the Agent Orange phenomenon is that the investigation into the effects on the military health was occurring at the same time that science was generating scores of new knowledge points about dioxin. So you put those two things together with the Vietnam vets aging at the same time that scientists all over the United States and beyond were studying the effects of dioxin. And the two things came together, which is something that you rarely see in science, that you can profoundly affect health policy by generation of research findings occurring simultaneously. And so as we sat on those committees, each new publication would bring recent results that would show, yes, say, for instance, in the later reports when we were looking at things like cardiovascular effects, ischemic heart disease, hypertension, or metabolic 
issues like diabetes, there were animal studies being done at the very same time that were showing there is a biological mechanism that they did not know when Agent Orange was sprayed. And so it was really looking backward in the context of very current scientific findings. So speaking of those committees, you say in your article that when they started constructing exposure assessments for veterans, this is decades ago, they had to deal with weaknesses in data, including troop location records. So what kind of progress has been made in tracking exposures, tracking outcomes since then, and where are there still gaps in the information? That's such a great question because we kind of assume that we knew where our troops were, but actually troops are deployed to specific geographic areas, and then they disperse from there in different types of military transport. And so they can be located in one site, but get on the helicopter and fly miles away and land somewhere else. And those records, it was very laborious to actually track. And there was no way you could get down to individuals and where they moved. I would say that has been one of the most perplexing problems in the Vietnam conflict and subsequent conflicts, being unable to really tell a veteran, yes, you were in an area in which exposures were high. And that, we saw it again with the conflicts in the Middle East, that when there were detonations of nerve agents, in Camasilla, we had to do, or this I didn't, but a lot of scientists did extreme modeling, trying to look at the plumes when they detonated those nerve gases, modeled where those plumes could have gone and who were under those plumes. Now today, think about the sensors that we have with GPS today, where if individual troops are wearing GPS sensors, and that goes into stored databases, I think the science in the future will be profoundly different because now we have the technology to actually track movements much, much better. We can track transport vehicles with GPS, and we can track the movements of individuals with GPS. But that was not the case, certainly in the Vietnam conflict nor in the Middle East conflict. The profiles of deployed troops have also changed over time, and there are now about 1.8 million female veterans and about 200,000 women who are on active duty with the U.S. military. So what specific challenges do female troops and veterans face, and has military medicine, military culture adapted to their needs? I think military services and the VA would admit they're catching up with trying to meet the needs of women. It just was not, when you think about it, in, during the Vietnam conflict, the women who served were primarily nurses, and they were out in the field operations and exposed just like men. And in the Vietnam conflict, while they were women service personnel there, they were small numbers, and they tended to all have the same job classifications and the same risk. It was completely changed in the Middle East conflicts because women at that time assumed job responsibilities that paralleled those of men. And so it wasn't that there were increasing numbers of women, but there were increasing numbers of women doing diverse work. 
And so it made providing the services they needed particularly challenging. And that we see that primarily now in the Department of Veteran Affairs. I would have never have thought 30 years ago that VAs across the United States are building out robust women's health services, and they're dealing with pregnancy. And a big area is how do women show symptoms of post-traumatic stress compared to men? Does it look the same? Is their prognosis the same? Are the treatments that they need the same? And so for many, many years in medicine, and we know this, the evidence of how we treat diseases was based primarily on the male model. And whether the care that we provide for veterans that we know work for men work equally well for women, we just don't know that. So you talk about post-traumatic stress. What about veterans' mental health more generally? Has awareness of mental health issues related to military service changed? Has access to mental health care increased? I believe that the Veterans Administration is experiencing the same situation that our general health care system is experiencing in the sense of a lack of access to mental health services. That being said, veterans who are under care in the VA system are very satisfied with the care that they receive. But the question is, if only 25% of veterans get their care in the VA system, who's caring for these other veterans? They are exposed to the same limitation of mental health services that all of us are. So there's never been a more compelling challenge for the U.S. healthcare system than to really look at our ability to care for all aspects of health of individuals, including the mental health. You talk in your article about recent legislation related to veterans' care, the, the Choice Act of 2014, the VA Mission Act of 2018. Have those bills improved access to care and care coordination for veterans? So the Mission Initiative and the CARES Initiative, data are just now coming in on its effect. And quite frankly, in the last year, it's been profoundly affected by COVID-19. So we can't really generalize about the effects of those new initiatives in the whole era of COVID-19 in which everyone's access to care has been affected. But clearly, those initiatives were in response to making sure that veterans had access. The issue with so many areas in the United States is access is pretty poor for a lot of people. And so giving veterans access to care in the private sector will only be as good as access is for the rest of the population in the private sector. It's not like our private healthcare sector is functioning at a high level and the VA system is at a lower level. We know the U.S. healthcare system has real challenges in access to care. And so that's the real issue that we have to look at in measuring the impact of these new initiatives. So finally, as you say, many veterans are receiving care in the civilian sector. So how should non-VA healthcare providers and health systems meet the needs of veterans and offer veterans the best possible care? That's such a great question because unfortunately, individuals in the private care sector are often not asked the one singular question 
are you a military veteran? And if healthcare providers and healthcare systems are not asking that question, if it's not part of the electronic medical record, how can they address the problems that are unique to veterans? It's totally on the shoulders of the veteran to disclose their service in the military that may have occurred decades before. I remember when we first started studying the conflict in the Middle East, I was talking to a 27-year-old veteran who was not under care. He came to us as a healthy volunteer who wanted to tell us about his experience in the Middle East. Healthy young man, 27 years old, and we were asking him about his health and what he was experiencing. And he said, well, other than the joint pain that I experience every morning when I get up, how hard it is to get out of bed and to get around my house in the early morning, but that's just from getting old. And he was 27 years old. And so this 27-year-old man is not going to tell a primary care physician, he's not going to seek help for joint pain. And so it was just so striking to me that for those of us who study veteran health, our perception of this 27-year-old man compared to his own perception of his health. And so that's why people in the private sector have to deal with that if they don't ask the question and they don't understand the type of exposures these veterans have had, they won't be able to adequately assess them and plan their care. Thank you, Dr. McCauley. 